Welcome to the Murder Book, a true crime podcast, where each week we will present notorious crimes, controversial cases, unsolved cases, missing persons, and serial killers, details of the crime scenes, childhood of the murderer, and the life of the victims will be explored. Each episode is translated into Spanish. We have a new episode every Monday, and you can listen to it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, and other platforms you use to listen to your podcasts. Let's begin. Due to the graphic nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. Extreme caution for children under 13. Welcome to The Murder Book. I'm your host, Kiara. This is a new season, and we're starting with a new case. This case has been known by many as the killings at Glensheen. This happened on June 27, 1977, when an intruder entered Glensheen. Glensheen was a manor built along the Lake Superior Shore by Chester Condon, patriarch of one of the most generous and respected families in Duluth, Minnesota, and before leaving with uh, a basket full of jewelry, the intruder used a pillow to smother Chester's last surviving child, Elizabeth Condon. After killing the Harris uh, nurse who, who fought with the intruder, and she was murdered with a candlestick. The crime set in motion by a handwritten well pen just days before the murders. So we're going to look at the crimes, at the trials surrounding um, the people involved in these killings. And this is going to be brought uh, to light by a former Duluth detective. His name was Gary Walkler and the St. Louis County Prosecutor John DeSanto. These were the men who first investigated and prosecuted the people involved in these killings. So even though there's a lot of articles in in the archives that I have looked into and the trial um, transcripts, I also going to use the definitive book in the case that was written by these uh, two people, John, John DeSanto and Gary Waller. Let's begin. The city of Duluth, Minnesota, sits roughly 150 miles north of the Twin Cities of Minneapolis, St. Paul. And this region, during the 19th and early 20th century, uh, the region was helped by a boom in lumber and mining industries. Uh, now, by 1905, Duluth boasted more millionaires than any other city in the United States. And they used to call it the Zenith City of the Insulted Seas. But... By the 1970s, the economy had slowed down. A shortage of trees reduced the lumber industry. And mine after mine shut down due in part to an influx of foreign steel. 
while Duluth hosted many visitors drawn to the lake and such sites as the Aerial Bridge, its great tourism boom wouldn't begin until the late 1980s. In 1977, Duluth was perhaps best known as the home of millionaire entrepreneur Geno Paulucci of Geno's Inc. This is the man that has been credited with inventing the pizza roll. But the residents never knew or couldn't imagine that this small city would soon be the scene of the most notorious double murders in the history of the state of Minnesota. And this starts with a Sunday afternoon uh, of June 26, 1977, where Elizabeth Condon, the daughter of Clara Condon and her husband Chester, an attorney who created a fortune investing in the mining industry, returned to her family's estate after a weekend in uh, at, a, at a farm called the Swift Water Farm. And this was pretty much her summer uh, lodge. And it was located on the northwestern Wisconsin's Brule River. And every Friday after lunch, Elizabeth, her driver, Richard Card, and a nurse uh, left for the Brule, returning each Sunday before dinner. Elizabeth was 83 years old, and she had lived in the same house for 72 years. What there is a manor called Glen Sheen is a 39-room mansion that the parents, her parents, had built uh, on an enormous estate, and the backdrop of the estate was Lake Superior. Elizabeth was the last woman standing. She had outlasted all her brothers and her sisters. And Miss Elizabeth, this is how the household staff will call her, um, was a heavy set woman. She um, wore glasses. She had a stroke like 12 years earlier. Um, and this stroke was pretty bad. It, it left her comatose for 10 days. It destroyed massive amounts of brain tissue. It crippled, it crippled her, her right side. So she has some partial paralysis. And so she would use or was uh, basically confined most of the time to a wheelchair. So she was made um, a little bit dependent on having around-the-clock nursing. And she have living servants. She was nearly deaf and also suffered from diabetes. So she have to have a nurse um, because she required insulin shots as well on a daily basis. Since the stroke, Elizabeth suffered from aphasia. So she did lose a little bit um, in her ability to speak and express ideas so she could say yes, she could say no. But if she was trying to to say a whole sentence, um, it was uh, really hard for her because her words were distorted, especially if she, if she was getting tired. So she used flashcards, and the flashcards helped her communicate. And if she forget a, uh, a letter the family, the friends, the nurses, the servants, they start reciting the alphabet 
until she stopped at, at a certain letter. And then they start listing off uh, words beginning with that letter. And then she would not like saying, yes, that's the one. That's what I'm trying to say. But despite of her handicaps, Elizabeth refused to be pity. She refused to to be cuddle. And she tried to have as much as independence as she could. This is a woman that when she was young, she was very um, active. She was physically active. So she tried as much as, as she could to lead um, an active life. And she had her routine. She would wake up in the morning and then after breakfast, she would do her uh, therapy exercises on the third floor of the mansion. Walking was was really difficult, but she always tried to not be confined on the wheelchair all the time with the help of her nurse. She always tried to take a few steps. She had these parallel bars that she would have to keep to make sure that she would get uh, these steps in every day. Since the stroke, she also um, couldn't use her right hand, so she learned and she uh, and she taught herself how to brush her hair and her teeth with her left hand. Um, she writes um, a little bit, and she uses her left hand for that. And she even learned her to feed herself with her left hand because she didn't want to be have somebody feeding her. And she was able to read. She had always a lot of visitors. Um, a lot of friends to come and, and see her. And she liked to be in the library. And if she needed something to say to her servants or household staff, that's where um, they would meet her to to know what, you know, what she wanted and, and please her. And she, if the, the, the weather was good, she could go to the porch and have her lunch there. Um, she liked to look outside, and this is a woman who loved the outdoors. Um, so they would wheel her to the outside to get some sun every time it was possible. She loved to look at the gardens. Um, Glenshin used to have formal gardens that were beautiful to look at that at them. Um, Elizabeth was a very generous woman, so a lot of donations uh, for charities and non-profit organizations in her name um, were received uh, constantly. And Elizabeth led overall a quiet life. Um, she didn't like the fuss and the, and the mass about anything. She, From time to time, she would go and watch a movie um, but other than that, you know, she was not, uh, it was more people coming to see her than her going, uh, places. And she preferred that word that way. So in this Sunday of June, the last Sunday of June in 1977, it was a day like always. She did all her routines. She was getting tired, uh, she arrived to the mansion at around 4.30 p.m. Um, after coming from the farm, which is like a two-hour trip. Um, she was with her a nurse named Mildred Kosowski, Miss K. And 
they took all the stuff, her suitcases, two, uh, um, her purse, several dresses, put everything back in the in the bedroom, and then she went. The nurse went down to help Elizabeth. Uh, she wanted to sit in the living room, facing the windows, and she just wanted to rest there. And then the nurse went back upstairs and put everything away, and she brought um, a basket that was full of all Miss Elizabeth's medication and the visitation charts, uh, pillowcases, anything that she needed was in those baskets. And around 5 p.m., uh, Elizabeth, who fell asleep on the couch in the living room, woke up from her nap, and she wanted to play with the nurse cards. She was always a very good card player. And they did that until around 6.30 in the afternoon. They stopped. They ate some supper, something light. And I believe it was tuna salad, some, an egg salad, um, some fruit, skim milk. Um, she ate in the library with the nurse. They play a little bit more gin ramen, uh, Rami. Uh, they watched some TV. And Elizabeth, uh, according to the nurse, was in good spirits. She was talking about um, celebrating the 4th of July in the country the next weekend. And at about 9 p.m., uh, her personal secretary, Vera Dunbar, called to give Nurse uh, Klosowski an important message. She said, a call was expected from one of Elizabeth's adopted daughters, Marjorie Caldwell. The previous Friday night, um, th there was a call that have um, been intercepted um, and it was a woman that refused to identify herself. So um, the maid, Miss Conjure, had intercepted a call from that woman and she thought it was Marjorie, the adopted daughter. Uh, so she told her, hey, Miss Elizabeth is not here. She's coming back on Sunday afternoon. And she didn't want to leave a message of any kind. Um, but people knew that Marjorie, every time she called, she wanted something from her mother, and it was usually money. So her personal secretary, Miss Dunbar, told Nurse Krusowski, not to pull the call, the call through. Nurse Kosowski had been told the same thing by the maid um, in the past too, that usually they don't um, put uh, the calls from her adopted daughter through. And the reason for that was that the maids knew that Miss Elizabeth would not refuse to bail her daughter out of another financial mess but they were trying to protect Miss Elizabeth. So despite this uh, Dunbar's, uh, the personal secretary warning, the phone never rang. That, that expected phone call never happened. At 10 p.m., Nurse Klosowski wheeled Miss Elizabeth into the elevator, which they exited on the second floor. 
The nurse pushed Elizabeth around a corner down the hall, turned left into a simply decorated bedroom. Through the door, she turned left again, maneuvered the chair beside Elizabeth's metal hospital bed, with its matching nightstands and lamps on both sides. Along the wall, across from the other side of the bed, was a door to the closet. There was also a dresser, the bathroom door, and a vanity. The far corner of the room jutted out, there, jutted out and it formed a nook with window facing the lake. There was a chair, a small desk, there was some memorabilia, um, case of full of family heirlooms, and those things filled the nook. Then in front of the nook, there was a sofa, and this sofa faced the bed, and it was covered with needlepoint throw pillows. A television stood just to the right of the sofa opposite the bedroom door, and then there was a fireplace, and this um, stone mosaic fireplace dominated the wall to the right of the entrance. The nurse lifted her patient into bed. She opened a window to let in fresh air, as Elizabeth preferred. And as part of the bedtime routine, Nurse Klosowski removed Elizabeth's hearing aid, disconnected her phone, and as usual, Elizabeth wore to bed her gold watch and her favorite ring. Her favorite ring was a platinum um, strawberry dome ring, and this contained 12 diamonds, and it also had 15 rounds sapphires. Elizabeth was so tired that she didn't need the medication that she sometimes took in order to sleep. She also didn't watch any television, as she did most nights. And she had had a nice uh, weekend at the, the farm. Um, she even had a visit that was unexpected from her grandson, Stephen Leroy, who was her adopted um, daughter Marjorie's oldest son. By 10.45, Miss Elizabeth was settled in bed. She was tired, but happy. Nurse Klosowski left one of the nightstand small lamps on and bedroom door open. Elizabeth went to sleep lying on her right face, facing the fireplace. And there comes... Nurse uh, Velma Pietila. Velma Pietila was the nurse, the night nurse for Sunday, and she arrived at the mansion shortly before 11 p.m. Nurse Klosowski was standing at the window in the nurse's room, and she watched as Pietila parked her car near Glenshin's front door. She walked toward the mansion. Pietila prided herself on her well kept appearance, and her nurse's uniform revealed. Um, that she was a slender lady with uh, muscular legs. And she was a petite woman, but she was strong for her, uh, surprisingly strong, because she was a person who played a lot of golf, a lot of swimming. Um, and then on top of that, lifting Miss Elizabeth in and out of her wheelchair has helped her uh, pretty much keep in shape and keep her, her arms strong. And... She had been a, um, a registered nurse since 1933, so she was now around 66 years old, 
but she was uh, very healthy, very fit, so she looked even younger than her age. And she has spent the previous seven years working at Glensheen. She just retired the month before, and all she wanted to do was to travel and spend more time with her husband. However, head nurse Mildred uh, Garvu, who have taken over Miss Patilla's um, daily 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. shift, had called Friday sounding desperate. The regular night nurse was on vacation and the substitute nurse had company. So she was asking to see if Pitila, even though she knows she's retired, she just wanted to ask, you know, call in a favor for her to fill in for her Sunday night. And Pitila hated working nights and her husband strongly objected, but she had loved working for Miss Elizabeth and her sense of duty and affection worn out. So after Nurse Kroksowski left Nurse Patila in, the two women charted up, uh, upstairs for several minutes. Um, Kroksowski described Elizabeth's condition, and she handed Nurse Patila the key to the medicine cabinet. Then Patila looked at her watch as Kroksowski glanced at hers. It was five past eleven. And so Petila said, well, I, I'm letting you go home. It's getting late. And Petila went ahead and spent the night in the nurse's room across the hall from Elizabeth's bedroom. She sipped fruit juice. She had a sandwich and a nap on a piece of cake that she was saving for later. And Petila was reading a book that she had brought from home. The title of the book was I Didn't Come Here to Argue um, from Peg Bracken, and soon she would be involved in much more than an argument because soon she would be fighting for her life. As part of her morning routine at Glensheen's Maid, Hazel Congard unlocked Glensheen's front door for head nurse uh, Mildred Garvu so the doorbell wouldn't disturb Miss Elizabeth. But when she went to unlock the door Monday morning, Conger was surprised to find the chain off and bolt lock undone. The nurses were supposed to follow a specific lookout routine. The nurse working the 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. shift would check the windows in the library to make sure they were locked. She would also test the front door's push button lock, put on the chain, and engage put on the chain and engage the deadbolt lock. The night nurse, which is from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. shift, would never knock on the doors or ring the doorbell when she arrived. Instead, the nurse on duty would watch for the night nurse to arrive and unlock the door. The night nurse would then relock the doors after her colleague left. But Nurse Petila must have forgotten to finish locking up this time. The, get ma- the maid guessed as she popped up, opened the push button lock. Garvu arrived shortly after, before 7 a.m. Her first task was to get Elizabeth um, insulin from the refrigerator in the pantry where um, which Cook Prudence Relinquist uh, was organizing and 
the breakfast tray. And so she talked to Miss Elizabeth. Um, and she started saying, how is Miss Elizabeth this morning? And she said, well, I don't know. I haven't been upstairs yet. Uh, and this is Miss um, Garbo's answer. Insulin cold, purse in hand, she headed upstairs to uh, talk with the night nurse about Elizabeth's condition, Nurse Patilla. So when um, <clears throat> Garvu started up the stairs, she was startled because she saw bare legs dangling on the landing between the first and second floors. And that was Nurse Patilla. And she lay motionless. She was awkwardly sprawled on the on the red velour window seat beneath a, a view of Lake Superior. And at first glance, Garvey thought the night nurse was resting or had perhaps fallen down the stairs. Nurse Petila's legs hung over the side of the window seat, but her upper body was twisted around on the seat cushion. And her arms have had hit her face and her hands were nearly clasped, almost as if in prayer. So Garvu walked and climbed further up the stairs, and as soon as she did that, she spotted blood crusted on the carpet. She stopped as she began to realize that something terrible had happened. Garvu slowly looked up to where the night nurse lay and saw a pool of blood beneath uh, Miss Patilla's head, and she approached the window seat and bent down, but could not bring herself to look at Patilla's body. She did manage to lift the knife nurse's stiff arm to check for signs of life, and she noticed immediately that Patilla's cold, uh, arm was really, really cold. And it felt like cement in Garvey's hand. There was no pulse. Garvey started shaking with fear. And she gathered the courage to look closely at Miss Petilla's body. And her face was a rust-colored mask of dry blood. Her jaw appeared broken. Uh, blood spattered her uniform and pulled on the polished hardwood floor beneath the window seat, staining the oriental carpeting. A blood-covered brass candlestick stood on the carpet several feet from the body. She was horrified, so Garvey, of course, ran upstairs in a panic, concerned for Miss Elizabeth. She flung her purse and coat into the nurse's room as she rushed into the, into the heiress bedroom. Often in the morning, Elizabeth, already waking up, would smile and say, how are you? Before Garvey had a chance to ask Elizabeth the same question. This morning, the room was in disarray. The dresser had, uh, drawers had been pulled out. Um, and jewelry boxes lay open, but they were empty on the floor near the vanity. Elizabeth lay face up in her bed, her legs bare, the sheets pulled back. Her left arm was bruised. Her gold watch and diamond and sapphire ring were missing from her wrist and hand. A pink blood uh, flecked satin pillow covered her face. 
and Garnu nervously lifted a, a content. Miss Elizabeth's face was purple. Garnu didn't need to take a pulse. Instead, she rushed downstairs to the kitchen where Conger wait, waited to bring up the breakfast tray. And Garwood said, Velma's dead. Miss Elizabeth been murdered. And her face and, and voice numbed, they were numb with shock. In Conger suddenly weak, she clung to Garwood for support. They knew they had to call their police. But they were afraid that they would upset Rehnquist, who had a heart condition. So they avoided using the kitchen phone. Arm in arm, the two women guided in, uh, each, each other slowly and uh, toward the front, pulpit, uh, front hall phone. And they phoned the police at 6.58 a.m. The Duluth Police Department recorded, recorded the emergency. And it says something like this, if we read the transcript. Uh, it says, severe emergency. Garview was the one talking to in the, on the phone to the dispatcher. And she said, severe emergency, 3300 London Road, homicide. And the dispatcher repeated the address. And she waited for her to continue. She said, yes, sir, the condom estate. So, so what's the problem? She's, she said, homicide. She said, okay, just a minute, we'll get an ambulance, 3300 London Road. She's like, yes, please. And she, the dispatcher told the police and the paramedics, and she said, possible 1089, which is, you know, a homicide. So Congard and Garview then tried to call Dunbar, Miss Elizabeth physician, Dr. Elizabeth Bagley. But when the head nurse picked up the phone, there was no dial tone. The two women looked at each other in, in horror. The phenomena had just um, the phone has just worked, but now it was dead. So Conger went to fetch Glenshin's maintenance man, leaving Garvio alone in the mansion. Uh, Garvio uh, in anxiously waited for the police to arrive and praying that the killer or killers wouldn't go to her first. So let's talk about Chester Condom, which is Elizabeth's father. He was the richest man in Minnesota when he died in 1916, according to news accounts at the time. Local legend has it that the conservative Republican died of a broken heart after Democrat Woodrow Wilson won the presidency. He was an attorney, a landowner, a state legislator, and he would have been remembered in Minnesota even if his daughter had died peacefully. The condom name is sprinkled throughout Duluth, Condom Park, Condom Boulevard, Condom Park Elementary School, to name just a few tributes. At one time, Chester even had a ship named after him. But on November 7, 1918, the Great Lakes iron ore carrier Chester A. Condom ran aground on a reef. It remained there in a rocky area called Canoe Rocks near Isle Royale 
until, until a storm sank it. The wreck site is now called Condom Shoal. Chester was born in 1953 in Rochester, New York. He was the son of a Methodist minister. And as a young boy, he moved with his family to Syracuse, where his father had a new large church. His childhood was uneventful until he reached the age of 14. During one tragic month in 1868, Chester's father died of pneumonia and three of Chester's siblings died of scarlet fever. Suddenly, the patriarch of the common family, Chester, took his new responsibilities and he took them very seriously. When the time came, he decided to attend college at Syracuse University, which allowed him to be near his mother, his little brother, and, sis and his little sister. He also sent money when he could to help his mother with payments for the family farm. During the freshman year in 1871, Chester met Clara Hesperia Bannister of San Francisco, and they soon discovered they have something in common. Methodist minister fathers. They made a striking couple, both excellent students. Chester and Clara graduated Phi Beta Kappa in Syracuse University's first class of 1875. Clara further distinguished herself as one of the university's first women graduates. During college, the couple had become engaged, but they proposed or postponed, I should say, their marriage until Chester established himself professionally. Clara found a job as a school teacher at a small women's college in Belleville, Ontario, on the north shore of Lake Ontario, where she taught art and mother languages. Chester remained in Syracuse studying law at a local firm and was admitted to the New York Bar in 1877. The next day, Chester traveled west in Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin. Apparently, he helped a teaching he hoped sorry a teaching career would bring prosperity, but he only lasted one year. And tired of teaching and being poor, Chester inquired about legal opportunities in the Midwest and back east, where his family remained. Chester decided to remain in the Midwest and moved to St. Paul, Minnesota in 1879. The next year, he was admitted to the Minnesota Bar and hired by a St. Paul law firm. But his early days were marked by a scarcity of money and a wealth of doubts. Chester worried about his worth as a lawyer and prospective husband. He felt he had failed himself and Clara for in five years after graduation. He was still struggling. In Chester wrote Clara that his net worth consisted of $9.67 in cash, $5 receivable from his firm, $8 in prepaid rent, a $5.75 meal ticket, two pounds of crackers, two pounds of canned meat, and a half pound of coffee. In another letter, um, he told his fiancée, uh, uh, to his uh, fiancé Chester, um, that he berated himself as nothing more than a second-rate lawyer, and he was telling Clara that he should have the good sense to be a, a cowboy on the plains. But, you know, the, the Clara was always cons consoling him and giving him hope. And Chester's poor prospects suddenly improved months later. 
when he was asked to serve as assistant to the U.S. attorney for Minnesota, William Bilson. His career finally launched. Chester took Clara to make wedding plans. They were married in a small ceremony in Syracuse on September 29, 1881, and their honeymoon was in Niagara Falls. Theirs was a traditional marriage based on a strong religious faith. Although the Methodist Church didn't prohibit them, Clara would not allow drinking, smoking, or card playing in her home. Chester and Clara's first of seven children, Walter Bannister, Condom was born in St. Paul in November 1882. The family lived in St. Paul for 11 years, had four more children, but little is known of their activities during that time. In 1892, Chester, Clara, and the growing family of five children moved 150 miles north to Duluth. There, Chester set up a law partnership with his old boss, William Bilson. The law firm of Bilson and Condon quickly earned statewide reputation for its expertise in civil litigation. On October 10, uh, 19th, uh, 1892, not long after the move, Clara noted in her diary that she saw, uh, she saw first carved ore from the Mesabi uh, range. And the Mesabi, together with the Vermijan Iron Range, is an ore-rich region in northern Minnesota that stretches over 100 miles in a northeasterly direction from Grand Rapids to Eli, Eli, and the Mesabi Iron Range became known for its soft ore, which lay close to uh, the surface. So when you extract the ore, it doesn't require deep mining. The Mesabi generated a string of towns along its range from Grand Rapids to Babbitt, some with mining-inspired names like Taconite and Mountain Iron. Pittsburgh mining magnate Henry Oliver came to Duluth to research the Mesabi range for himself, visited the firm without advance notice. Oliver wanted to talk to Bilson, who was out of the office, but was persuaded to speak with a younger partner. He was so impressed he hired Chester that day as chief counsel for the Oliver Iron Mining Company, which became one of the largest copper and iron ore producers in Minnesota's iron range, the result of a lucky break and Chester's legal talents. Chester became a self-taught expert on iron ore properties as an investor, consultant, and landowner. His biggest coup and Moneymaker came at age 48 when he purchased land containing lower-grade ore initially ignored by the mining companies, who eventually leased the land from him. And soon, Chester Condon was turning iron ore into gold. The late 19th century was a time of significant iron ore exploration and discovery in northern Minnesota. The major players included the Rockefellers, the Carnegies, J.P. Morgan. Chester became increasingly active as a business consultant for the mining companies, serving on numerous boards, but always protecting Oliver Mining's interests. He continued as counsel for the company during its sale to J.P. Morgan's United States Steel Corporation in 1901. The sale left its mark on the region by creating two towns along the St. Louis River just south of Duluth, Oliver, Wisconsin, and Morgan Park a company town built for workers at the U.S. steel plant. 
After the sale, Condon and Oliver started their own business, leasing iron ore properties. Chester's investments went beyond mining properties, however. He bought large tracts of land in the south, including some in Louisiana, for their farming value, raising muskrats on, or the development of a hunting resort, depending on which family members remember correctly. This property increased significantly in value after his death when oil was discovered. During a trip to the West Coast in the late 1800s, Chester had fallen in love with Washington State's Jacquema Valley and recognized its agricultural potential. He began purchasing land, which he eventually developed into a 375-acre orchard and cattle ranch. He helped build Condon Ditch, one of the largest irrigation systems in Jacquema Valley, for his apple, cherry, pear, and peach orchards. As for his cattle, Chester heard of Aberdeen Angus, which was of the largest in the country and nationally known. And on his ranch, he built a family home out of native basalt stone on the side of a hill overlooking the orchards and named it West Home. The mansion was known to locals as Condom Castle for its castle-like design, including turrets. Oh, turrets. Um, West Home was also distinctive for its indoor swimming pool, and that was the first of the region. Besides his vast wealth and land holdings, Chester Condon earned a reputation for his civic contributions. For example, it, he gave a large sum of money to the city of Duluth to purchase land along Lake Superior. This property later became part of Panoramic Highway 61, north of the city, that is called Scenic North Shore Drive. Chester had little patience for political deals and favors, but became increasingly active in the Republican Party. He was a member of the Republican National Committee, served two terms in the Minnesota House of Representatives from 1909 to 1913. During his tenure, he denounced legislation to tax St. Louis County at the state's highest property tax rate as a backhanded way to raise taxes on the iron and steel industries. The measure was defeated Reappointment of political districts, an issue still prickly today, kept Chester so busy during his last house term that Clara noted it in her diary. Despite his work as an attorney, his been working as an investor and legislator, Chester's family came first. After living in several houses in Duluth, including the Redstone, architect Oliver Traphagen Sandstone and Red Brick Duplex Masterpiece, located at 1511 East Superior Street, Chester and Clara decided to build their own house. As the turn of the century, they purchased a 14-acre tract along Lake Superior beyond Duluth's fashionable East End. The July 23, 1903 entry in Clara's diary says, Chester and I went to Tisher's Creek to measure the place for house. Construction didn't begin until May 1905. The site of the condoms uh, that the condoms cho chose for the new home was flanked by stands of pine and birch trees growing along Tisher Creek. Chester named the estate Glenshen or Glensheen, sorry, in part of for his family's village of origin, which is Sheen in Surrey, England. And as the family story goes, for the way the sun shone on the waters of Tisher Creek. Glen derived from the deep ravines or glens 
carved out by the creek on the west end of the property. From the selection of the building site to the mansion's architectural and interior design, Glenshin was Chester's special project. During the four years of construction, he spared no expense. He commissioned Clarence Johnson, uh, Johnson uh, Sr., a prominent architect for the state of Minnesota, to build the family house. A few years earlier, Johnson had been appointed architect to the Board of Regents at the University of Minnesota and is credited with, uh, uh, with designing many of the university's buildings on all its campuses. Chester hired one of the Midwest top interior designers, William A. French, Company of St. Paul, to decorate Glenshin with furnishings from around the globe, Italy, Ireland, Algeria, Germany, the Orient, and the Middle East. Glenshin's Jacobean design reflects the architect's classical training and Chester's fondness for English architecture. The 39-room mansion's external features include large rectangular windows with divided panes, three curved gables rising above the roof, in a series of tall brick chimneys. The decor also features Jacobian-style touches such as handcrafted uh, uh, pilasters to the main hall, an integrated central staircase, carved to resemble leather scrap work, ornamental plasters, uh, ceiling accents, and stained glass windows in a two-door rose pattern. Red brick terraces with marble pillar railings overlook manicure longs, formal gardens, and a fountain. Each of Glenshin's rooms feature international furnishings personally selected or crafted for the mansion. The main hall's rich dark wood paneling greeted visitors entering the house. In June 1906, Clara and Chester traveled back past, uh, east to Burlington, Vermont to see Granite, and according to Clara's diary, which they purchased for Glensheen. By the following summer, the mansion's third floor was plastered. Clara Road and Glensheen was more than halfway complete. In 1924-1908, three months before Glenshin was completed, Clara noted in her diary that the Condon families moved in and all spent the night there. While typical lakefront houses in 1909 cost between $11,000 and $16,000, Glenshin's price tag at completion was $864,000, given modern construction techniques and, uh, and the limited availability of the raw materials, experts estimate a current price tag as high as $30 million. While Chester took an opulent approach to Glenshin's magnificent design and interior decorations, he also equipped the mansion with practical features, such as buttons under the breakfast and dining room tables to summon staff. Glenshin had state-of-the-art appliances for the time, including a vacuum system that extended um, throughout the mansion. Hot water ran through pipes installed under the sink in the butler's pantry to warm plates and keep food hot for second helpings. The house originated or originally had um, gas light fixtures, but the condoms 
had the foresight to have wiring installed for the eventually electricity. And Chester also irrigated Glenshin's grounds with water from a holding pond on Tisher Creek. Over time, the estate grew to include a cottage for the gardener, a clay tennis court, bowling green, a carriage house with an apartment, horse uh, stables, room for several New New Jersey cows, which provided the family uh, with French milk and and butter. And Glenshin also boasted a large vegetable garden with a wealth of crops such as corn, broccoli, asparagus, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, cauliflower, peppers, tomatoes, and squash. In back of the main house on the lakefront, the condoms constructed a beach house with the with an attached L-shaped um, pier. The estate also included four greenhouses, the palm tree, carn, uh, carnation, general plant um, house named for the plants cr- uh, grown in, in each. Several years after the condoms moved into Glensheen, they ate ripe bananas and oranges from their own trees that grew um, in, in, in the palm house, the property's largest greenhouse, along with orchids, palm trees, and other ex- exotic plants. Chester grandmother supplied fresh flowers for the day, fresh to enjoy each, uh, each day. So now, uh, following Glenshee's uh, completion, the state became a gathering place for condom family members, friend, uh, friends from around the country, and the house was often filled with guests. Chester and Clara frequently hosted parties at the mansion or, in warmer weather, dances on the roof of the boathouse and boat rides on Lake Superior. To the children growing up with its brick walls, Glenshin could be stuffy and formal. Elizabeth and her siblings dressed formally for dinner every night. The boys wore black tuxedos and the girls long dresses. But the mansion also made a, a wonderful playground. Glenshin had secret compartments, numerous hiding places for games like sardines in the dark, a combination of hide and seek um, and tag. One person hid, and, and as each seeker found the hide, the hither, they too squeezed into the hiding place. Winters meant skating and hockey on the grounds at Teacher Creek or the Condon Park ring just up the hill from Glensheen. The children also enjoyed sledding down the steep slope a couple blocks east of the mansion. The condoms celebrated Christmas time in grand fashion, elaborately decorated Glensheen. Um, three Norfolk Island pine trees grown in Glensheen's own greenhouses and were brought into the mansion and put up in the main hall, the living room, the recreation room. The family decorated the living room with a tree with uh, traditional Christmas ornaments and silver tinsel. Clara personally selected gifts for each child and grandchild. Chester distributed $20 gold pieces to the household staff. The condemned clan would gather at Glensheen on Christmas Day, a tradition that held through the years. 
Elizabeth's nephew, Tom Compton, lived at Glenshin for 18 months with his parents, sister, and brother, while other house, other house was being remodeled. He remembered the traditional Christmas breakfast at Flummery, uh, Flummery a gritty, grainy hot cereal of Scottish origin. And like her cousin Elizabeth's daughter, Jennifer Johnson, uh, remembers hearty Christmas breakfasts, um, breakfast in Glenshin's dining room with Sister Marjorie, their mother, and grandmother Clara. After breakfast, the four sang Christmas car, uh, carols as they walked downstairs one at a time, oldest to youngest, to the recreation room. They would find a fire blazing in the fireplace and um, wrap presents stacked beneath the Christmas tree. And then, before the cardinal relatives arrived for the big meal, at noon, the family opened their gifts. The Christmas noon meal consisted of turkey, trimmings, mashed potatoes, sweet potatoes, cranberries, mincemeat, pumpkin pie, and it was served in the dining room. And as a young child, Jennifer enjoyed visiting with her cousins as the children um, are the Christmas meal in the less, they would have it in the less formal uh, breakfast room. Tom's sister, Mary, um, condoned and Van Evira and, uh, and say Christmas night was celebrated with friends and neighbors. They would invite uh, people around town that didn't have family, family friends who didn't have any connection like bachelors, former boyfriends, um, and then of, of Elizabeth. And dinner was held in the basement with all the food on the billiard table. In early spring, while the woods were still blanketed with snow, Chester and Clara's grown children and their children would have a cookout and make maple syrup candy. As the weather became warmer, family activities often revolved around the lake and lakefront. The condoms held parties on the beach, and on 4th of July, they picnicked and set off Roman candles. Chester bought a pleasure boat and named it Hesperia, which is Clara's middle name, and the boat was docked at the pier behind Glensheen. During the summer, Chester and Clara entertained friends on the boat, taking it out on the lake while a live orchestra played on the boathouse roof. Unfortunately, a mishap with the boat's fuel destroyed the Hesperia in July 1916 in a fire that also damaged the boathouse. Chester and Clara were seasoned travelers. They visited many European countries, um, Middle East, Asia, and they displayed special mementos that they brought um, home in their little museum, a room at the west end of the mansion's basement. The mementos included miniature tea sets, uh, souvenir teaspoons, wooden carvings, ceramic tiles. In addition, Clara collected seashells and coral from their travels to tropical destinations such as the Caribbean, South Seas, and Rovatonga. Some items like a Persian rug became part of the mansion's decor. As the children grew, Clara became more of a homebody, preferring to remain behind at Glensheen while Chester traveled in, on business. Family vacations, however, remained important to Clara and, and Chester. The Condo family visited Clara's relatives in California and New York, toured historic sites, attended world fairs and expositions, 
including those in Seattle, Chicago, San Francisco, and Portland. As a father, Chester was caring and supportive, although he expected his children to excel academically and was a stricter disciplinarian than Clara, Chester also enjoyed a close relationship with each of his six children. While he and Clara had a large family, they tried hard to spend time with each child individually. Chester had a special uh, way of getting to know his children better. Each year, Chester told one child on a trip, um, one year Elizabeth and her father sailed Lake Superior on an iron, um, an iron one ca uh, carrier. And another time, Chester took Elizabeth's brother, Walter, on a trip down the Nile. Clara was a loving mother, but as was the practice in those days, not an overly demonstrative uh, parent. Her children were encouraged to be self-reliant. As Clara explained to one of her grandchildren years later, she says, In the old days, we didn't believe it was proper to fill our children with love and affection. We had to be stoic and teach them to be good expert, uh, good sports and overcome all obstacles. But Clara took an active interest in her children's activities. She screamed her children's books to make sure they were suitable. Guilfrey at uh, sewing uh, needlepoint, applique, and other handcrafts, including making lace, which she collapsed from the, around the world. Clara taught her daughters that uh, those skills. Clara's children also received lessons in thriftiness. When the seamstress came to Glensheen to see clothes to sew the clothes of the children or for the children, Clara had her make every you know, other, um, over any reusable clothes belonging to the older children as hand-me-downs. Torn bed sheets that couldn't be mended became pillowcases. Frayed towels found a new home in the maid's bathroom. Chester and Clara instilled in their children a sense of noblesse, um, oblige, and for the condom children, this meant that because they had more money than most, they had a duty to give to others. Community service would become a priority in their daughter Elizabeth's life. Clara, a devoutly religious woman, made sure her children regularly attended services as at First Methodist, where she was an active volunteer. As she had done in their previous homes, Clara did not allow alcohol to be served at Glensheen, but when Chester hosted his business associates for dinner, he liked to serve brandy after the meal. He had a secret liquor cabinet in the basement in a closet of the, uh, the playroom, which was not accessed until after Clara and the other wives retired to the living room. Jennifer Johnson remember a family story about the night Chester had no had to repeatedly ask the butler to bring up brandy for his guest. And the butler would say each time, I'm sorry, Mr. Condom, there isn't any brandy. Chester asked him to look more thoroughly. And finally, the fourth time the butler was unsuccessful, Chester could see and smell the real reason why. There was indeed brandy, but unfortunately was inside the butler. Clara discovered the liquid after Chester's death and promptly donated it to St. Luke's Hospital to use 
for medicinal purposes. When Clara was in her late 20s, she lost most of her hearing to an unspecified illness, and sometimes wore, uh, she wore an ear trumpet as a hearing aid. She found the device cumbersome and unhelpful, but instead began carrying a pad and a pencil around to better communicate with family and friends. Although she never learned sign language, Clara became skilled at reading lessons, or sorry, reading lips, um, even from across the room, and Clara could make out an unkind word for a harsh retort as her children and grandchildren learned the hard way. Chester and Clara wanted the children to receive good education, so they sent them off to prestigious East Coast preparatory schools and colleges. Elizabeth, older brothers, attended prep schools in Massachusetts and Pennsylvania before attending Yale. Elizabeth and her sister Helen and Marjorie attended Dana Hill, uh, Dana Hall, which is a private boarding school for girls in Wesley, Massachusetts. Elizabeth was a good student who excelled at, in, at history and English, and her parents encouraged her to continue her education. After graduating from Dana Hall in 1915, she enrolled at Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York, where her sister Helen had also gone. Chester Condon died of pleurisy on November 21st, 1916, in his apartment at the St. Paul Hotel, where he stayed during the legislative session. He was 63 years old, and he had become ill shortly after the returning from Duluth, where he had gone to vote in the presidential era, uh, sorry, uh, election. And his her father's death uh, brought Elizabeth home to Duluth after her freshman year of college. She did not go back to Vassar, feeling it was her duty to remain at Glensheen and look after her mother. In 1913, Chester had established two trusts to provide and maintain um, for his wife and children a home so long, uh, so long so any of them shall live, making it easy for any of the children who so many w- may wish to occupy Glensheen. Elizabeth became her mother's closest companion, a special relationship the two women shared for 34 years until Clara's death at age 96 in 1950. Elizabeth stayed until her own death, the last of Chester and Clara's children, and the only one to live in Glensheen her entire adult life. Soon after her return to Duluth, Elizabeth devoted herself to volunteer work. Although Elizabeth avoided publicity, her generous donations of money and time to uh, charitable and civic organizations um, put her in the public eye. Education institutions, long important to both sides of the Elizabeth uh, family, became one of her priorities. She served as a member of the Chancellor's Group at Syracuse University. Her parents alma mater, and she was a trustee of Dana Hall, the preparatory school she attended, and nearly um, or nearby Pine Manor Junior College um, 
year later, oh, years later, sorry, um, Elizabeth uh, received an honorary doctorate from the University of the Pacific in Stockton, California, where her maternal grandfather had been the first president and founder. Elizabeth shared her father's interest in civic affairs. She served as president of the King's Daughter Society of Duluth, and when it became the local junior league in 1920, members selected Elizabeth as its first president. She held a seat on the board of the St. Luke's Hospital Guild, and as a board member, took charge of a major uh, decorating project. She helped redecorate an entire wing, selecting wallpaper, traveling to Mexico to buy decorative art pieces. During World War II, Elizabeth organized and headed the American Red Cross Nurses Aid Committee in Duluth. The women volunteers wore bad bandages, prepared care packages, uh, neat mittens and, and scarves, and helped however they could to support the war effort and the local hospitals. Although Elizabeth didn't knit, she wrote hundreds of bandages and coordinated volunteers. Those who knew Elizabeth well said she didn't have the impression of belonging to one of the richest families in town. She shunned fancy clothes, preferring her instead to wear simply style, uh, fine cotton dresses and sensory props or pumps. She wore her hair, her hair nearly coiffed, but in a simple and fussy style, Elizabeth adorned herself with a little Jewelry, typically a, a simple strand of cultured pear, uh, pearls and matching earrings. Elizabeth did sometimes indulge a more from aid. Her pride and joy for many years was a Studs Bearcut sports car, followed by a Cadillac in the family's favorite color, a pine green they call condom green. Although Elizabeth remained uh, single, it wasn't for lack of attention. In her late 20s, she seriously considered marrying Fred Volving, who was a handsome Duluth beau and longtime acquaintance, considered a good catch by Elizabeth's friends and family. Um, Elizabeth accepted a diamond engagement ring from Wolving, although their engagement was never officially announced. Elizabeth later told Wolving she didn't, uh, loved him enough to spend the rest of her life with him. The story goes that after she returned to uh, the large diamond engagement ring, her distraught sweater threw it into Lake Superior. Woven never married, and when he died, he left Elizabeth money in his will to buy a ring to commemorate their friendship. She purchased a diamond and sapphire dome ring she wore faithfully, on her little finger until she died. For reasons she kept to herself, Elizabeth never married. Nevertheless, Elizabeth loved children and didn't like convention st stand in her way when in her late 30s she decided she wanted children of her own. And although adoption by single women were virtually unheard of in the 1930s, Elizabeth had family and financial resources that many adoptive couples did not, which likely assisted the adoption process. In 1932, at the age of 38, she contracted uh, 
an adoption agency in Greensboro, North Carolina, and brought home a three-month-old baby girl named Jacqueline Barnes. She said, I want to help her. I can give her a good home and schooling. Elizabeth told family and members and, and friends, and she decided to name her, rename her daughter Marjorie after her sister and Mannering after her mother's father. Marjorie Mannering Condom slept in a bassinet in her mother's bedroom. There was a kind of feeling that Marjorie was to be the answer to Anne Elizabeth's lonesomeness and her feeling of being unskilled as a single person. This is according to her niece, Mary Van Ebira. And then she said, but that also made Marjorie sort of a toy. I remember reading in Clara's diary that Elizabeth was away again today, and I think that Elizabeth left the babysitting job to her mother a whole lot. Three years later, Elizabeth Condon adopted her second daughter, this time through a Chicago adoption agency. As part of the adoption proceedings, she obtained um, a letter of recommendation from attorney uh, Howell Stason, Minnesota's future governor. Elizabeth adopted a baby girl whose parents, unmarried college students, could not afford to raise a child. She called her new daughter Jennifer Susan because she liked the name. The two girls couldn't have been more different. So next week, we are going to focus on the investigation after the after the fact that now that everybody knows that Elizabeth and her nurse um, had been murdered, her by, it looks like, asphyxiation, and her nurse was uh, beat up with a candlestick. Uh, stick. So let's see what happened with the investigation and who are the main suspects. Have a great week. Thanks again for tuning into the Murder Book, a true crime podcast. You can find all episodes of the Murder Book for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Our Heart Radio, Podchaser, Amazon Music. You can go to my website, themurderbooktruecrimepodcast.com. All resources used in researching this episode, including books and newspaper articles, are on my website. We are on Facebook and on Twitter at TheMurderBook1. Send your comments or suggestions at my email, TheMurderBook5 at gmail.com. Please subscribe and leave a five-star rating so that others can find this podcast and it helps me get better. Episodes come out every Monday. And there's a Spanish version for this episode. Enjoy your week. Thank you.